That uh, song, 10,000 Reasons, is obviously taken from David's uh, really immortal words in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul. We're going to read a text in Scripture that will bring up the same word, although David utters it in Hebrew. The word uh, for soul in Greek is a bit different, but means the same thing. It's the essence of your being. It's who you really are. It's, it's sort of the fountain of your rationality, emotionality, your personality. What David is saying is, he's commanding his soul to bless the Lord. And so in this text we're going to read, we're going to hear someone else direct their soul. And it's quite a bit different. There is no gospel writer who understands more about the distinction that the gospel makes regarding our wealth than Luke. When I was in seminary years, decades ago, uh, at Princeton, I took a course called Rich Poor Theme in Luke-Acts. Dr. Luke understands that when you look at the Gospel, you will see, and especially if you read all of Luke and all of Acts, maybe in one sitting or a couple of sittings, you'll see that Luke is continually contrasting rich and poor. And what Luke will say is what all of the writers of the Old Testament who address the subject say, and that is that God is on the side of the poor. It is fascinating that Jesus, when He stands up and declares the beginning of His ministry and He goes to the book of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. And all through the ministry of Jesus, you will see how He ministers to those who are spiritually poor and many of them that are financially poor, emotionally poor, in great need. And so listen to um, what Luke tells us here in the middle of his gospel, chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. And Jesus told them a parable, saying, a land, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Did you hear about the Texas oil man that went to New York City for the first time? 
He was walking in Soho and he decided that he was thirsty, so he went into a bar for a drink. He sat down and got a drink. And within a couple of minutes, a beautiful woman came and sat right next to him on a bar stool, right at the bar. Even though there were many other places where she could sit, she sat right next to him. Well, he was thrilled by this and he didn't want her to think him rude, so he turned to her and said, Hello, darling. I'm Billy Fred from, and she interrupts me, I bet you're from Texas. He said, how did you know? She said, well, first of all, your name is Billy Fred and you called me darling. But then as I look at you sitting on that bar stool, my, you're tall. He said, darling, you're really perceptive. I am from Texas, but there's one thing you missed. I'm really not all that tall. I'm just sitting on my wallet. My maternal grandmother was anything but tall. You know, as a teenager of maybe 15, I remember I used to hold out my arm and she'd stand under it and there'd be about a foot between her top of her head and the bottom of my arm. I mean, she was one of the smallest people I think I've ever met. And yet, when she spoke in that southern drawl from Pensacola, Florida, I listened. She used to say things to people like Kirsty and Nick who just got engaged. They just got engaged. When she heard about young people getting engaged, she'd always say, many a slip between the cup and the lip. That's pretty negative. <laughs> but the one thing she used to say that I love to hear, she didn't say it often, but she'd say it sometimes. She'd say, they say money talks, but all it's ever said to me is hello and goodbye. You know, Joe Kennedy thought that about money. Joe Kennedy, the patriarch of the Kennedy family, he was the one that actually bought uh, that property on the Atlantic Ocean in Hyannisport. He used to gather the family together in the Kennedy compound, and they'd always gather together that first night and gather around a large table for dinner. And when they'd gather there, Joe would always sit at the head of the table, and before the meal was served, he'd always review all of the bills that had been charged to his account from that family. And one particular night, he was railing against Ethel, Bobby's wife. She was clearly in his crosshairs, and as he was railing against her at the height of his tirade, Ethel got up in tears and stormed out of the room and said, I'll never come back. It took Bobby Kennedy about a half hour to settle her down and convince her to come back to the table. And when the two of them sat down, nobody said a word, complete silence, and then Jack Kennedy said, Bobby, while you were gone, we figured out a solution to the problem. Dad's just got to go out and make more money. <laughs> Someone has said a wise person should have money in their head, but never in their heart. And the problem is most of us have allowed money to seep into our hearts. Epictetus, the great Greek philosopher, once said, wealth consists not in having great possessions, but having few wants. And the problem is most of us have great wants. Winston Churchill once said, we make a living to get, but we make a life by what we give. 
And yet most of us spend our lives making a living and not making a life. Did you know that in all of the Gospels, if you put all four Gospels together and you counted all the verses and then you read all the Gospels together at one time, you would find that one out of ten verses deal with money? In the whole of New Testament, there are 500 verses that deal with prayer, 500 that deal with faith, and 2,000 that deal with money. In Jesus' earthly ministry, he told 38 parables, and 16 of them deal with money. And nobody understands the power of money any better than Luke. Here in this text, Luke tells us that Jesus is in northern Israel. And he is in an open teaching area, and there are crowds that are massive. In fact, the English says so many thousands were there, but that word translated so many thousands literally means 10,000. 10,000 people are there, and Jesus is teaching. And interestingly, as you read the text that precedes what we just read, you'll find out that Jesus in teaching is not teaching the crowd or even speaking to them, but actually speaking to his disciples. And so 10,000 people are there and he's actually speaking to 12 or a few more. And he's talking to them there about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He's talking about having a genuine fear of the Lord and sound objectives in your life. He's talking about how to depend upon the strength of the Lord to give you exactly what you need when you need it. He's talking to them about their soul's condition. And in the midst of his teaching, one of the 10,000 interrupts him saying, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now in Jesus' day, if you had a dispute with someone, if you had a need for a legal decision, you'd go to a rabbi and you would do what that man did. In this case, he has a dispute with his brother. But notice he's not asking Jesus to make a decision. He's already made the decision. He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He's not calling for a decision. He's made it. He wants Jesus to be on his side. You know what Jesus says to him? Man. You know what that word literally means? It means stranger. It means I don't even know you. Like, who are you? Who made me judge or arbiter of you? In other words, I came to bring men to God, not property to men. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with addressing this one man. He addresses everyone, the entire crowd, and he uses the opportunity of this man's question to say what Jesus says frequently. Some translate his first words as, take heed. Others say, be on guard. But literally, what Jesus is 
saying is, you have a deadly foe that you must guard yourself against. Take heed. Be on your guard. Be ever vigilant. Always look out for this foe. Who is the foe? Money. You say, but how can money be a foe? How can money defeat me? And Jesus answers that question with a parable. And remember the reason Jesus speaks in parables? It's so that you might find yourself in them. Where are you in this parable? Where am I in the parable? Well, let's dig in. First of all, notice that money can make us inward. Look at verse 17. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Now, Jesus has already told us that this man is rich. And to every Jew in that culture in Palestine, they'd know that a rich man, by definition, would be living off the labor of others. To be rich meant that you weren't simply living by the work of your hands, you were living off the work and the labor of others. You were profiting from the labor of others. So what do we know about this man? He's a gentleman farmer. He has vast land holdings. And he has servants who are in charge of supervising tenants and servants who are working his land to produce crops. And Jesus says, the land of a rich man brought forth plentifully. You know what that means? That means that everybody that worked for the guy was good at what they did. And the land produced plentifully. They're very productive. But look at the pronouns that this man uses. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He's got a whole armada a whole retinue of, of slaves, servants who are working for him, but when they get a bumper crop, all this man can think of is himself. What shall I do? What shall I do with my crops? There's no talk about giving any equity to those who work for him. There's no talk about giving crops away. There's no talk about doing righteousness. There's no talk about doing justice. All he can think of is his own desire and himself. Do you see how apt this parable is? The intruder who starts this parable is one who can only think of himself. Master, Make my brother divide the inheritance with me. He's not interested in Jesus' teaching. He's not interested in what Jesus would say about his soul. He's only interested in his own welfare. And the reason Jesus teaches or tells the parable is because he knows that money has a way of grabbing our attention and focusing ourselves solely on ourselves. The Roman philosopher Seneca once said, it's not the man who has little who is poor, 
It is the man who craves more. And Jesus would agree. Look at this guy. Though he's in a position to radically impact the lives of others, he's not even thinking about that possibility. He's totally possessed with himself. He's just like the intruder. Though he has the opportunity to literally change the economic condition of those that work for him and people well beyond, he's not thinking of that. He's only thinking of himself. Why? Because he's fearful that what he has may not last for him. What Jesus is saying is money is to be feared because it can turn us inward. Second, it can not only turn us inward, it can make us insular. Look at verse 18. But he said to himself, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. Again, no thought of anyone else but himself. There's no thought of those that the Jews continued to understand as the quartet of the vulnerable, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the stranger in the land. There's no thought of them. All he can think about is himself and his own desires. He's become very insular. He's the only one that matters to him. Doris Brown teaches second grade in Atlanta in a Catholic school. So one day she said to her Catholic second graders, class, I want you to draw a picture. I want you to draw a picture of what it would be like if you could spend the day with Jesus. So the pupils dove into the project. Crayons were being used feverishly, and after a few minutes, a little girl comes to Doris Brown's desk and says, Miss Brown, I'm almost done, but how do you spell Nordstrom's? <laughs> you see, the rich man assumes that everything that has been produced by his land is his. And according to Jesus, he could not have been more wrong. Malcolm Forbes died in 1990, but before he died, he wrote a great book. It's called, What Happened to Their Kids? And it's a story of wealthy people and their kids, and what happened to these children. And in it, he tells the story about J. Paul Getty, who at the time was not only the founder of Getty Oil, but he was also the richest man in America. He tells the story of how in the early 1970s, J. Paul Getty had one of his grandsons kidnapped. You may remember. At the time, he's the richest man in America, and the kidnappers demanded $17 million for his grandson's release. J. Paul Getty said no. He said, if I pay for one grandchild who's been ki kidnapped, what if all of them are? At the time, he had 14 grandchildren. You know what that would have meant? At $17 million apiece? If you total all of that, he would have had to pay less than 10% of his whole net worth. And yet he refused. He did nothing. After a couple of weeks, he received a letter in the mail and in that envelope was the right ear of his grandson. And the letter said, if you don't pay, you will begin to receive body parts in the mail every other day. You say, did he pay it? No, he negotiated. 
to $2 million. And then he turned to his son and he said, I'm going to pay $2 million for the ransom of your boy and you're going to sign this contract that you're going to pay me back $2 million at 6% interest. You know what Jesus would call him? A fool. For he is not controlling his money, his money is controlling him. And the truth is, your money and my money control us a lot more than we want to admit. It makes us insular. It makes us focus on our own fear, which is, will I have enough? Then third and finally, notice money here doesn't just make us insular. Not only does it make us inward, it also makes us think that money is perhaps the most important thing there is. Look at verse 19. I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Soul, you have ample goods for you. So relax, eat, drink, be merry. One time Henry Ford went to one of his closest associates and said, what's your biggest goal in life? He said, to make a million dollars. A few days later, the man received a pair of glasses in the mail with silver dollars as lenses. And when the guy saw Ford, he thanked him and he said, but I can't see anything. And Ford said, that's right, because the dollars are in the way. That's what Jesus says about this rich man. You fool. Tonight your soul will be required of you. And things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now think of the irony here. One verse earlier, the rich man had said, Soul, you have everything you need for many years to be satisfied. Now relax. In the very next verse, God says to him, You fool, tonight your soul will be required of you. That expression, your soul will be required, was something rabbis used all the time. They were talking about the sovereignty of God over your life, and when they said, your soul is required, it meant that God is in charge of your life, not you. In other words, it's just like your money. Your money is not just for you. Neither is your soul. Your money and your soul need to be given. You see, that's what David means when he writes Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. In other words, I could be possessed with my wives. I could be possessed with my fortune. I could be possessed with my power. I could be possessed with everything that I am. But soul, bless the Lord. He's making a conscious effort 
to resist the power of his own greed. Charles Spurgeon once talked about a man who was British. And he went to the Far East and there he began to accumulate beads and shells. And in that culture, to have beads and shells meant that you were wealthy. And this man was more wealthy than anyone else. And so after a time, he decided he'd go back to his homeland. And he got a large cargo ship and he loaded all the beads and shells in it. And he went to the port of Liverpool and he got off the ship and immediately he knew he was a pauper. Because in England, beads and shells don't make much difference. Nobody considers them valuable. And Spurgeon said, that's how it is in heaven when you consider money. Think of it, before he's interrupted, Jesus is talking about transparency. He's talking about the sovereignty of God. He's talking about the good news of the gospel. But instead of hearing it, this stranger demands Jesus to get him money. And Jesus issues a warning, be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You know what it does consist of? Jesus tells us. The essence of life is recognizing that you're part of a kingdom where you're living and you're giving and you're trusting is not in yourself, but in Him. The joy of changing lives through the production of our own efforts. About a hundred years ago, there was an American businessman who was a Christian. He was fairly wealthy and he gave $100,000 to a Christian school in Liberia. And through his gift, that fledgling school built buildings, they hired a faculty, and after 40 years, that school had educated over 10,000 Africans. And on their 40th anniversary, they decided that they would recognize this benefactor who started it all. And so they sent emissaries to America to find this man in Chicago. And they looked for two weeks and they couldn't find him. There was no trace of him. And the reason is because the man had lost everything in the stock market crash in 1929. He had lost his home, he lost his business, he lost almost everything. When they finally tracked him down, he was living in a rented apartment on the south side of Chicago. They asked him to come to Liberia to be celebrated, and he refused twice, but finally he agreed. At their insistence, he boarded a plane for Liberia, and after about 25 hours, he got there, and the next day there was a great celebration. There were brass bands, there were dinners, there were people milling all around the campus. And as he stood there with the president of the school looking down over the campus, he said to the president, you know, the only thing I kept is what I gave away. The only thing I have 
today is what I gave away 40 years ago. You know, the same is true for Jesus. Think of it. He who was rich for our sakes became poor so that we might become rich. You know what that means? Jesus was no fool with his money. And the question this parable asks is, what about you? Think about that. Amen.